Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. On MediaPath, we take you deep down creative rivers and tributaries that will feed your soul, and we guide you towards the fascinating and inspiring content you crave. What have you been enjoying this week, Fritz? Well, this is a big week for me because I made it halfway through one of the great tomes of my whole reading life, one of the great epics, which is a book called Sunset Boulevard, which is the biography of Billy Wilder, who is one of the most brilliant and versatile filmmakers in the history of Hollywood. He did movies like Some Like It Hot and The Apartment and Witness for the Prosecution and Double Indemnity, which might have been the start of the noir era, uh, Lost Weekend, and the movie Sunset Boulevard. And it's fascinating. It really, it's, it's, it's for probably film academics. There's a lot of minutiae about filmmaking in here. But what I found interesting about it is he's an Austrian who escaped Europe to avoid Hitler and all the survival that that required. So it's a great American success story. So I'm about halfway through, and I'm going to have a little party for myself. I, I just finished Profiles in Leadership. Historians on the Elusive Quality of Greatness. It's a book by Walter Isaacson, a great biographer who uh, wrote about Steve Jobs and Einstein and uh, lots of other... Da Vinci. Yeah, and he, he, uh, he, he's, a, he's a great writer. He got together a group of historians uh, to assess the quality of greatness among leaders and there were all kinds of people in there, um, you know, uh, U.S. Grant and uh, various people from history, presidents and Indian leaders and uh, corporate leaders. And what's that one elusive quality of greatness, of leadership? Uh, something people have been questioning themselves about. What mind. is it? What's the takeaway? There is no takeaway. It's everybody is... Um, everybody is, uh, everybody's agenda and success is dictated by the historic times in which they find themselves. So I guess you could say that, uh, the one takeaway is that these were people like FDR, uh, who weren't afraid to try things in the face of incredible headwinds, incredible adversity. They were, they were able to try things that were way outside the box. So I guess that's work, what worked. And the same for U.S. Grant. Even though he was tainted as a, one of the bad presidents in history because there was a lot of, of stuff going on in his administration that he really wasn't a part of, a lot of uh, crooked activity amongst his cabinet. But he made some decisions, especially about Reconstruction, that ended up not being successful, but his heart was in it. And it's just interesting. It's interesting to read about uh, how leadership is born out of the historical necessity of the moment. So I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I think what Meacham teaches us about FDR, which is that you you have to try something and you can't be so afraid of failure that you don't do something. You have to do something. And if it's not the right move, you will adjust accordingly because uh, attempting is learning. And that's so, so we're, we're all in that process. What have you read? I know you read Mary Trump's book and I haven't heard how you reacted to it. Yes, I have read Mary Trump's book. I, I, I think it's in, in, entirely enlightening that the, the one person in the Trump family who's speaking out is also a psychologist. So she's able to approach this family from uh, on that more objective standpoint. Of course, it's like personally hurtful what, what she's been through being raised by a brand name rather than a family and you know, having to adapt accordingly. But also, maybe that's what drove her into psychology. Some people that have challenging upbringings are driven to understand what it is about these people, what's, what's, what's fueling them, what's informing these dark decisions. <laughs> and uh, she's learned quite a bit, and she's just the, the woman of the moment who's able to apply what she understands about this family to, uh, to uh, our, our better awareness of what what's transpiring and that you know the home life has been that toxic home life moved into trump industries and moved into trump international and and now has moved into the white house so it's engulfing all of us we're all now part of this toxic family and uh, I, I i i do know that one thing about this book and that is you realize that the trump organization was not only screwing clients and patrons 
they were screwing family members. So it's intrinsic to the whole family dynamic. Yeah, they just, they're sharks. They just swim and eat. That's what they do. But I want to talk about uh, three podcasts that I've, I've been uh, scarfing this past week. And they're all kind of, um, these are included in what I'm calling uh, my educating white people curriculum. And I, I am but a freshman here, but I am an eager student. So the first one is called 1619. It comes from New York Times and it's hosted by Nicole Hannah-Jones and it's a series which observes the 400th anniversary of the beginning of American slavery and it notes and explores how absolutely nothing about the country we have formed here has been untouched by slavery. So uh, I, found, I highly recommend that. That's been getting great reviews. And then I listened to uh, Finding Harriet, which comes from Tanner Latham and they take a closer look at the life of Harriet Tubman and in so doing and examine the 19th century experience of African-Americans. And then this past weekend, I was listening to Nice White Parents. It's a podcast hosted by Hannah Joffe-Walt from This American Life, and it explores the unsettling amount of power held in public schools by white parents. So I just That's think that there's not, there's not enough we can consume as white people to better understand uh, the experience of being a person of color and that it, it's incumbent upon us to attempt to uh, absorb as much as we can. Interesting. Can I offer a couple of uh, suggestions in the streaming television uh, venue? Yes, please. My new favorite place to hang out is Hulu. I love Netflix, but I love Hulu as well. Two great pieces of work is the Hillary Clinton documentary on Hulu, yes. four episodes. It's so wonderful. And by the end, not only do you have more knowledge of this woman's accomplishments, you sort of lament the fact that if she were as relaxed and personable and forthcoming during her campaign as she was in this documentary, we might be in a different place right now. You it's also interesting, really, it's ahead, interesting that campaigning is such a different skill set than yep, is leading. Yep. And, and they go all the way back and you realize that since the beginning of her political career, since she was uh, the first lady of Arkansas, that there has been an organized, below-the-surface attack on this woman's credibility. She was a woman who was ahead of her time in women's rights and what women have the ability to accomplish and uh, trying to be more of a first lady than just being a first lady. She was just ahead of her time. And the conservative American public wasn't able to accept her. And that continued when she got into the White House, when even insignificant things like the way she dressed and the way she comported herself. And then they gave her the uh, health uh, system a revamp. And that turned out to because nobody was willing to accept that a woman could have this much responsibility. So when you see it, there's it's I, I loved it, but there was a sadness at the end of it that she was kind of victimized by history and the society of the time. Well, she definitely challenges uh, traditional female roles, which is threatening to a lot of men who don't have a ton of uh, security or self-esteem. Um, I don't think that that uh, successful, talented women are a threat to confident men. I think they're a threat to otherwise men. And and then the other aspect of it that's really fascinating is that, you know, because that because she was immediately attacked for wearing glasses and keeping her her maiden name and uh, etc. Hair in a bob. Uh, yeah, yeah, she was she was she was attacked. And so I think this leads to the private server. And she's never really been willing to just say, I knew that I know they're after me. And that's why I had wanted to have a private server. She would say convenience. She never just said the truth, which is that I've been under attack since I've been in public life. So I kind of wanted to keep my private life private. But she never was really, really willing to say that. And I don't know if I'm correct in that theory. But I Good think point. that's what no, led to her undoing. Point. I just want to mention one more thing before we invite Dan in here. The other show on Hulu that is my new obsession is called the Great. Have you seen that yet? No. It stars Elle Fanning. It is the funniest, most instructive show on television right now. It's called The Great. It's about Catherine the Great. And it's the very true story about this woman that sort of overthrew the Russian government and the throne of Peter the Great. And it's hysterical. And it's brilliant because what it does is 
keeps the real chronology of how this thing happened with an amazing sense of humor. The guy that plays Peter the Great is hysterical. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm addicted to it. It's 10 episodes, and I don't know what they're going to do when it's over, but I'm enjoying watching it. So those are my suggestions. You know, Russian history continues beyond them, and it never stops being fascinating. Those nope. people have not caught a break in centuries. No. Nope. <laughs> so right. I, with that having been said, I would like to now welcome Dan Winters. Round of applause, please. Uh, please click on Dan's beautiful website and start clicking around, if you would, Franny. Uh Dan, known for the broad range of subject matter he is able to interpret, Dan Winters is widely recognized for his unusual celebrity portraiture, his scientific photography, his photo illustrations, drawings, and photojournalistic stories. Clients include Esquire, GQ, The New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, New York Magazine, Time, Wired, National Geographic, Smithsonian Magazine, Fortune, Variety, W, Entertainment Weekly, Rolling Stone, Newsweek, Gulf Digest, Vanity Fair, and many other national and international publications. The Dan Winters Media Path also takes you through five books. Dan, as I mentioned these, would you kindly tell us what we will find in each of the books? Let's start with Dan Winters. America, colon, icons, and ingenuity. Ingenuity. So that, I think there's 120 photographs in that book, and that was um, a book that accompanied a museum exhibition at the uh, Jepson Center for the Arts in Savannah. And uh, all the photographs that were in the exhibition uh, are in the book, and it sort of meanders through a lot of different disciplines that I work in. So there's portrait work, and then there's uh, scientific work and aerospace work. Uh, there are drawings, there are collages. Uh, there's a lot of personal work, uh, black and white personal work. So it's a, it's a, it's kind of. I'm reluctant to use the term retrospective because I feel like retrospective maybe happens in 20 more years. So I'll use survey. But it's kind of a survey of uh, work up to this date. All right. How about uh, periodical photographs? Periodical. So, you know, it's not really a widely used term these days, but historically uh, magazines were called periodicals. So when I grew up, they were called periodicals. And so I used uh, periodical photographs for the title of the book. And the rule with that book was that, um, was that, uh, all the images uh, had to be published in magazines. So it's a book of magazine photography, and it's, once again, same kind of thing, since I do a lot of different subjects. There's aerospace work in there, there's portraits, there are portraits in there. Um, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty eclectic as well, that one. Road to Seeing? Road to Seeing is a 700-page kind of love letter to photography. It's partially autobiographical, uh, partially anecdotal, and I really wrote it uh, for the student of photography. I, I tried to answer a lot of the questions uh, that I, as a young photographer, had, but didn't know where to look for the answer. So I kind of talked through my own path. And, you know, it goes a little bit back to what we were talking about earlier, where Fritz was talking about, and you guys were both talking about the idea of how does a leader lead, uh, what distinguishes uh, a leader of exceptional quality from someone that sort of just goes through history. And, you know, circumstances, obviously, you know, those that rise to the occasion are the ones that are remembered, FDR, Lincoln, we think about it. You know, there are so many presidents that sort of like did their tenure and didn't, didn't uh, and not to say that they weren't good leaders, but there wasn't a sort of national or international crisis they had to respond to. So the idea behind Road to Seeing was uh, kind of using my own path uh, as a way to sort of like discuss the industry of photography, the history of photography, uh, the art of photography, and um, the different genres of photography. And so, uh, yeah, I think it was a it was a real labor of love. Yeah, and I also like like how you blend all of that with your with your own personal history. Mm -hmm. So that and, everybody. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Fritz. I think that your eagle photograph should be on paper money. <laughs> <laughs> That's I'd be good. the most I'd be good with that. beautiful, most beautiful photograph, and not the typical shot that you see. That, that's just a, an exquisite photograph. Thank you. You know, I, I've often thought only because I was in the news business and it was all about moving pictures and, and keep everything moving and make it short in the short American attention span that still photographs are much more impactful mm -hmm. than moving images because they forced us 
to stop our brains and consider this one moment in time and all that that entails, whether it's a portrait photograph or current events or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's very, very well spoken. That was very well spoken, Fritz. Um, you're right. And there are, there are some significant historical examples of exactly what you're talking about. There's where there's film footage and a still photograph of the exact same incident. And the still photograph is, by far more impactful than that. And I can, I can cite those. So there's film footage of the flag raising at Iwo Jima. Uh, Rosenthal just got to the precipice uh, of uh, Mount Suribachi. And it was almost immediately they were raising the flag. And he shot that picture and wasn't even sure he really got anything. Um, standing next to him was a Marine combat uh, photographer who was using the 35 millimeter uh, Bell & Howell IMO camera. And he filmed color coat of chrome footage of the flag raising, which if you watch that footage, you can single frame it and you can lock onto the frame. But if you just watch it unfold, it's completely just goes right past you. You don't, it's not, you can't contemplate it. it it's, it's just a non-event almost. It happens um, in a moment and it's gone. It, it's gone. And that photograph, I mean, speaks volumes. I mean, that photograph was, was uh, on every, you know, not every, but on many, many, many front pages all across the country when that was made. It went out immediately. In fact, the film from that image went to uh, Guam. Um, the uh, the marine or the uh, he was a AP photographer, but he was uh, a pool photographer. So that all the film got pooled together, and it went to a single darkroom. And the darkroom was on Guam, so it went by courier to Guam. And he got news back. He was still on Iwo Jima. He got news back several days later of how monumental this image was and how he, he, he had made this photograph that had appeared on all these uh, newspaper, front page newspaper uh, stories. And he didn't even know what the picture was because it happened so fast. So he thought it was a, he, he took another picture of all the guys assembled at the base of the flag after they'd raised it. And he called it the gung ho picture. And he thought that's, that was the photograph that they that they were talking about because he still hadn't seen the image. Um, and, of course, there's Eddie Adams' uh, horrific photograph of the street execution in Vietnam. Uh, there's film footage of that as well. In fact, you can see Eddie's elbow go into the frame when he makes that photograph. Um, That's and, the one I was thinking of, plus the, the girl in the napalming. Of yeah, a very good friend of mine took that picture, Nick <laughs> Utt. And uh, that's you see the you see the Sky Raiders come in and drop the napalm in the village and the kids run out of the village and Nick's photograph is just it just galvanizes that moment you know and that's powerful film footage as well but that that moment is so incredible I actually was friends with Eddie and I'm good friends still with Nick who lives in L.A. who made that photograph and he he tours around the world uh speaking about yeah, uh there it. it is yeah and you can see the on the camera right side you can see the uh combat photographer loading his camera or trying to take film out of his camera you know like he which is something that doesn't happen these days with digital cameras where you can shoot 2,000 images on one card but uh, back in the day you were limited to 36 exposures with 35 millimeter that's a different breed of cat, right? A combat photographer. Because Absolutely. 100%. You worry about your own safety, but you're worried about your art and delivering the story. I don't know that I can do that. Yeah, Nikki was, uh, I think Nikki was 17 when he shot that, or 18. Wow. He was, in, he was He's Vietnamese, and he was embedded with, uh, with uh, American units though, when he was shooting. He's a really, really kind, wonderful person. And he's very, very, very close to the point of talking once a week still with that little girl running from the napalm. They, wow. they have had a lifelong relationship after that event. Wow. And how, how did that image having been captured change, do you think, the arc of her experience? Well, that image and the image that Eddie shot both found their way very, very quickly. It, they were both shooting for AP into the, uh, into the mix. And there are people that argue that those two singular images completely changed the tide, the public opinion tide for the Vietnam War. You know, I mean, you don't know the backstory, right? So if we don't know the backstory of a photograph, we tend to make it up, you know. Like if we're not provided with a context, we tend to want to contextualize it. And uh, for me, I mean, you know, I started as a photojournalist. I studied documentary film. 
I started as a photojournalist working in Ventura County and then for the LA Times and then to New York and still do a lot of what I would consider photojournalism. I still consider myself a journalist. But um, <clears throat> I think, you know, the idea of like being there and shooting the thing and both of those images are flawed. Uh, if you look at them from a technical standpoint, you know, the exposures are off. Nikki's not so much. For years, actually, the picture Nikki took was, uh, was cropped so that it was almost more of a picture of the little girl. And only recently have they been putting it out uh, as the example that was just shown, which is a full frame where you actually see the, you know, kind of the context of what the image was made in. The, um, uh, I'll go ahead, Lucy. I just wanted to talk for a moment about the impact of photography on human history. And, uh, you know, we've always been sketching or carving into something. We've always, uh, humans have always had an impulse to want to uh, depict ourselves. But how has photography moved human history forward in, in ways that, you know, any, any sketch could lie, any, any drawing could, could just be uh, imagined, but a, a photograph, we assume, is actual. And mm -hmm. so since the dawn of photography, how, how have photographs been, been pushing us to, to really see ourselves? I think the most interesting thing about photography is that if people could communicate better at the time, at that time, the problem of photography would have been solved significantly earlier. We'd have portraits of Washington probably because people were trying to solve the problem then, but there was no communication. So it was all these people working in isolation uh, and, um, you know, solving one little bit or this or that. But I, I really believe if people could have gotten together and shared notes, uh, the problem would have gotten solved a lot earlier. But the, the problem is we don't and we never will because it, even, even, a, even a search for a vaccine, I mean, flight was the same way. You take 100%. any invention, there's a, there's a competitive instinct in each of us that 100%. prohibits that. Yeah. In fact, so much so that when in 1839 is when uh, Degure, uh published with the Royal Academy, or the Royal Society in London, and usually that was kind of the that was kind of the standard uh, place to publish for for ownership of any particular you know discovery you know uh, new species description anything like that. The Royal Academy was was sort of the gold standard, and when he published in 1839, people came out of the woodwork. We're just like, are you kidding me? I've been doing this for five years. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't something that Daguerre singularly came up with. In fact, he, Daguerre actually shared notes with a gentleman, a Frenchman called Nessafort Nieps, and Nieps was trying to solve the problem in the 1820s and actually got a, a permanent image in uh, 1826. That was the first photograph known. It's the oldest living photograph. It's from 1826. And Daguerre heard of his work and went and met with them, and they sort of put their heads together, and they kind of went down a path that was a path that was yielding images, but it wasn't what became the standard negative positive uh, approach, which a gentleman, uh, English gentleman, gentleman scientist named Henry Fox Talbot, uh, he 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 uh, developed the negative positive matrix, which became. Uh, the standard, you know, the, the Gerotype is a one of. But to answer your question uh, about uh, the way history was recorded and shaped, I mean, certainly it was very elitist early on. Photography was very elitist. Fritz, do you have a question? No. I, okay. I, I, I have several, but I, I, your answer okay. is fascinating. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> you know, certainly luminaries were who were photographed first, but there were there was an English photographer named John Thompson who in the 1840s went out and photographed the life on the street and street people and the poor and the beggars and the people in the marketplace and the fishmongers, et cetera. And his body of work is just spectacular uh, because like <clears throat> historic painters, you know, your patrons were the people you painted, which is why some, you know, people like Vermeer and Rembrandt who painted outside of the patron circle uh, are noticed today. Um, so John Thompson is definitely one of the, the people that photographed outside of that sort of luminary circle. But um, then we got into warfare and the Crimean War, which was such a waste of time. Not that all wars aren't, but um, the Crimean War was the first war that was actually documented. And uh, that was documented by a gentleman named Roger Fenton. And uh, you may have seen, there's one very, very well-known photograph called uh, Into the Shadow 
into the shadow of the valley of death. And it's a photograph of a road that's completely covered with cannonballs. And Errol Morris actually wrote a really fascinating book called uh, Believing is Seeing. And it speaks about what we're talking about to a degree. Um, the idea of like taking a photographic image at face value and what's the story behind it and what's the history behind it. And uh, it, I won't divulge uh, sort of his findings on this particular image because it's a just absolutely fascinating story, fascinating book. And anybody that's interested in photography or visual communication at all, uh, I would highly recommend this book. It's one of the best reads I've had in a very long time. Um, yeah, I think I watched a documentary about this image. Yeah, okay. So you know the you know the story and the lengths they went to actually to identify that road is still there and looks pretty much the same. It's overgrown with vegetation a bit, but he went and found the road and the time of day. Uh, Fenton kept very, very copious notes. So they knew the time of day, so they knew the angle of the sun and they knew everything about it and they identified all the cannonballs by name. They named all the balls to try to figure out if they'd been placed there or if they'd been, uh, or if they had landed there or, you know, it's, uh, it's beyond fascinating book. But uh, so Fenton, he documented the Crimean War and then certainly the American Civil War was one of the most widely, uh, uh, was at the time certainly the most widely uh, documented uh, historical event. And uh, Brady, Matthew Brady, who is a very common name, I mean, t to the point where in that period, if you got a photo taken of yourself, the colloquialism was that you were Bradied, which I thought was interesting. You know, he owned, he had ownership of the process to that, to that degree. But um, he took out a very, very large loan from the American uh, Film and Paper Company, ANSCO, uh, for over a million dollars. And those are a million eighteen. $61. And uh, he outfitted uh, a whole league of photographers with photographic wagons and team of horses, all the paper and chemicals they needed, assistance. And they went out and they just took to the war and documented the war. And Brady wasn't documenting. I think he only went to one battlefield. I think he, he went to the aftermath of uh, Antietam, if I'm not mistaken. So he was using and the Thomas Edison technique. Totally. He was, he was fully pulling in Edison. Yeah, it was his brand. And his brand got him along, went a long way. And, uh, you know, access is, you know, if I shoot for National Geographic, people react to you very, very differently from if I'm shooting for, you know, the Thousand Oaks News Chronicle. Mm -hmm. It's just inherent. You know, you get access. And the Brady name got a lot of access. Um, he went broke. He went bankrupt. You know, he realized at the end of the war that no one wanted to see pictures of this horrific event. And he, it actually got to the point where he was selling, he was so broke that he was selling all his studios closed. He had a studio in Boston, New York, and D.C. And what he did is he ran the studios during this whole thing. So he wasn't out there photographing. Several really people that were of incredible note later on, William Henry Jackson, Timothy O'Sullivan, uh, were shooting for him, shooting the war for him, uh, and they went on to distinguish to have distinguished careers as well afterward. But he uh, he was basically a pauper when he died. I mean, at the very end, he sold his negatives to the Library of Congress for ten thousand dollars. But he was selling his negatives to for silver reclamation. He was selling them to a place that would strip the silver off the negative, and yeah, that's how bad he. It was so he was shooting. They were shooting four by five um, and eight by ten, five by seven, eight by ten, four by five glass plates, and he was selling the uh, selling the silver off the negatives, which is really really sad. So why did his calculation misfire? It, it, that he, he they were photojournalists. Why what why why weren't what they were shooting? Why wasn't that valuable at the time? It they were valuable. A lot of the photographs that you see in Harper's that were engravings. Uh, so Harper's Weekly was a publication that was very highly regarded during the war and after the war and before the war. Um, and the illustrate the way it was illustrated. So photomechanical printing didn't exist uh, at the time. So if you wanted a photograph reproduced, the method to do that didn't exist during the war, came after. So what they did was they uh, did an engraving of the photo. And then that illustration would be in the magazine. But, and they used a lot of Brady's photos for that. But uh, he, just, he just 
he just saw it wrong. He saw it wrong. You know, I think he thought that those were going to be very saleable images, that the public was going to want those. I mean, to be honest with you, it went so wrong at the first Battle of Bull Run with regards to, you know, people taking picnics out there to watch a battle and just seeing like what ultimately happened. You know what I mean? Sort of the social elite of Washington, D.C. took their carriages out to the battlefield to watch in Manassas to watch the battle as though it were going to be some one of spectacle. Um, I just think after the hardships that the nation went through and the just sheer volume of the loss of life that okay. it just wasn't, people weren't interested. And like I said, you know, at the end, of, very end of his life, uh, he did sell his re- remaining negatives for $10,000. So he died with, you know, some money in his pocket. I mean, but it was, it was definitely a pretty big miscalculation. So what was happening was the photos were not being used in newspapers. That technology did not exist. Didn't exist. They, yeah. they were photos that were designed to be looked at in in the morning newspaper and then thrown away that night. And that well, they, it didn't. Yeah, it didn't. That it was, didn't and Harper's had just a legion of uh, sketch artists that were in the field as well. And they would do sketches. The sketch would get back to Harper's. They had engravers on staff. They would do the plates, engrave the plates, and print them. But, yeah, the idea of actually taking a photograph and reproducing the actually continuous tone image didn't exist during the war. Okay, gotcha. How did they process the plates out in the field? Did they take them back somewhere and do the solution, or did they build a tent and do all that stuff out on the battlefield? They had these incredibly elaborate and very well outfitted big wagons that had a back door and they went in the back door of the wagon, had two horse team to pull it and they had everything in there they needed to do the processing and printing and what they were doing mostly in the battlefield is just processing eggs. They had uh, sliding racks for all the glass negatives to store them. It was an incredible, incredible operation. Fenton, actually, if, if, uh, if you look up uh, Roger Fenton's uh, photographic van, I think you could probably find it. Fenton actually had kind of a proto version of what Brady ended up with during the Crimean War in the 1850s. And he, uh, he, uh, you know, once again, you had to, there was so much you had to do. Those were wet plate images. So you had to mix up your silver nitrate and your collodion and your albumin. Yeah, there it is. So that's Fenton's and you could probably do a Brady photographic wagon as well. I'm sure it'll come up. Um, but the uh, the uh, plates had to be coated and then quickly put into a film holder and then quickly exposed and then quickly processed, all while it was still wet. So it was definitely laborious. I mean, we have it just so good uh, nowadays with regards to you know making images, although the quality of those images is just absolutely breathtaking when you see an original print, the sharpness, the richness of the tones, you know, we've lost that to a degree. Let's talk oh. about uh, The Last Launch, which is uh, one of your books, Discovery, Endeavor, and Atlantis, because I want to I shift and speak a little bit about um, space travel, okay. which is a great interest of yours. Yes. Last Launch uh, was a project I did in uh, 2011. I believe it came out in 2012. Yeah. Um, I've always been, you know, I grew up with the Apollo missions and I remember as a kid, you know, all my heroes were astronauts and I have always been enamored by space travel. And a lot of the, a lot of the assignment work I've done has been space related. And when the, uh, the uh, announcement was made that the shuttle was going to be retired uh, and that there would be, uh, Initially, they said there would only be one more launch, which would have been uh, STS-133, which would have been Discovery. Um, and I had shot shuttle launches before, and I had all the equipment to do it. You know, we use sound triggers for the cameras that are placed around the pad, and then I shoot from the press site with uh, uh, manual cameras. Um, I uh, I quickly jumped on the you know the idea that that was going to be the last shuttle launch. I need to really document that. So we shot with uh, 13 cameras on Discovery all around the pad, and then I operated two from the press site manually. And then they made the announcement that Endeavor was going to fly again one more time. And so uh, I did the same thing, went down to the Cape, shot that, and then that's Endeavor. No, that's Atlantis, actually. That's the very last launch right there. That's Atlantis. Uh, And I did the same for Atlantis. I shot all three launches. And then I did all the – or a lot of the ancillary – ancillary uh, 
systems that were required to main, maintain the shuttle, uh, shot inside the orbiter and shot all the shuttle processing and and uh, there's some SpaceX stuff there and uh, put it together as, I think it's a 90, uh, 90 image book. Very proud of that. It was very difficult. You know, you don't have any idea when you're looking at those images that basically you're setting cameras in a swamp that is infested beyond with mosquitoes and we're have to wear mosquito nets and it, you know, the first launch was earlier in the year, but the second two were later and it was just as hot as Hades in there. And, you know, you're have to draw all your storyboard, all the, each camera gets a storyboard because you want each camera to yield uh, its own image. And so being really mindful of, you know, what camera's doing what and what the image is going to be. And, you know, sometimes knowing the trajectory of the shuttle, it's very consistent that uh, it, it goes up and it immediately rolls over on its back and flies upside down up to orbit. And uh, so you have to sort of like point the camera at the sky and just know that it's going to fly through it. But when you're setting the camera, there's no, there's nothing there. It's just sky. And it's very disconcerting to walk away from a camera like that. Yeah. Cause you're but, not there. Uh, you're, you're not, not there. there. No, you'd be killed. Yeah. Those are real oh close. My gosh. Those are about uh, between 650 feet and maybe a couple thousand feet away, depending. But yeah, the wider shots, I really like the wide shots, you know, that you really see the spectacle. Yeah. You started as a photojournalist, but I huh. say, having been in the business, that once a photojournalist, always a photojournalist. Always. Yeah, I would and agree. And you've revisited some current events, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. topics, like the Murchison school shooting in Texas, mm -hmm. um, the Swiss air crash, wildfires, shot from a Texas wildfire. What draws you back to those types of, and I think one of the most powerful ones was shooting the Flint water crisis mm -hmm. and you shot it in black and white, which mm -hmm. made it even more profound and more depressing. It's quite beautiful. Yeah. I do kind of what I call, it's not, not in an attempt to have any elitist sort of allegiance to it, but the idea of like these kind of poetic photo essays, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of subject matter is covered wildly by the press and Flint certainly was as well and I looked to see what had been done and I wanted to kind of the approach I take t typically well the first approach I think is to find out how much use how much real estate the publication is willing to give you because do I need to sum this up in one picture or do I get 10 or how many pictures am I going to get and the Flint one was a, a portfolio in Wired magazine and they committed to give me a good amount of space and then we also have the added luxury now of uh of online um, publishing. So Wired can publish six or eight pictures in the magazine, but they can also publish like 15 more from the same shoot on their website. So they get a little bit of a bigger life. Um, and uh, I think that, uh, I think that helps a lot for journalists across the board now is their, the work, uh, the work gets a broader usage. Um, but yeah, I would agree. And what, I think what draws me to it more than anything is just, kind of my interest in social justice, to be honest, you know, I like the idea of, you know, if there's a problem, what can I do? How can I lend my talent to this thing? How can I lend my ability to this thing? Is, is there, can I affect change? Can I, you know, I did a Time Magazine cover once for, uh, uh, the story was about uh, suicides in the military. And it was a cover uh, of, uh, uh, of a soldier blowing taps at a, at a, a military cemetery. And it was one of those rare occasions when you could really see a direct result of my efforts. So that Time Magazine came out on Tuesday, and this is actually on YouTube. I don't know how I'd ser search it, but- uh, He's got it up there, it looks cool. Two days later, uh, a $10 million uh, rider onto a bill was approved. Uh, for suicide prevention in the military based on that cover. And they had made a big blown up version of the cover and they had it on the floor. And it was one of those times where I sent the video to my dad and I was like, okay, wow, I know you really don't know what I do, <laughs> <laughs> but here's something that I'm proud of. So that was a really oh great moment gosh. for me. Wow. Let, let, let me ask you a question about a specific series. And I love this series because it's so ironic. And that is your Texas gun owner series. Mm -hmm. 
Now, what I found interesting about this, and I'll ask you, first of all, what drew you to that subject matter, was that all these were very attractive, very responsible-looking humans, well-dressed, and against the caricature that you were drawing in your own mind about a Texas gun-toting mm -hmm. crazy person. Mm -hmm. These people look like middle-class folks, mm -hmm. and I thought that was really profound to show the gun culture in America in a way that no one had ever shown it before. Yeah, that was actually really deliberate um, because I feel like, you know, the gun culture in Texas, first of all, is like age old. You know, this is a frontier state. Uh, you know, this is Chris Kyle's wife. Uh, Chris Kyle was uh, the uh, army sniper that was- Yeah, American sniper. Murdered, yeah, so you know, so that's, uh, that's Taya. Uh, Kyle, and that's one of Chris's weapons. Uh, this is a this, this this couple does a lot of duck hunting. Um, the uh, the Texas Ranger, who is uh, yeah, there you go. That's Joaquin Jackson. Where is he? There he is, Joaquin Jackson. What a he's classic a classic face. Yeah, he's a legendary uh, Texas Ranger. He passed away last year. He's a very close friend of mine. I photographed him in 1993, and they uh, the magazine hadn't put him on the list uh, for this particular story and I, I called him and said, you know, I need a favor. And I didn't realize this at the time, but when he posed for that picture, he, after I shot 16 frames and he said, Dan, I, I need to sit down. I can't stand anymore. Aww. And he had, he had cancer and he didn't know it yet. He'd been going to the chiropractor for his back, thinking something was wrong with his back. And uh, he was, uh, he died not too long after this was made, but he was a really, legendary Texan, uh, really widely known in the state. And, uh, you know, he was a law enforcement man for his entire life. I mean, he started early 20s with the Department of Public Safety and went to Ranger School, Ranger, and had a massive area of land that he was responsible for out in West Texas, uh, very high re highly respected. Um, do you go into it with an agenda? Are you allowed to have your own agenda, or do you let the agenda presented itself as the shoot goes on. I, you know, with this one, I, I think what I do usually when I do portraits, like I'm not a very underhanded person at all. And I try to be reverent. And, you know, this is a third, three generations of, uh, three generations of uh, men that all, uh, you know, that are all shooters. And, you know, I want to be reverent to them. You know, I'm not judging them. I don't want to be judgmental. I think that the gun industry is typically covered by, you know, obese bubbas with Confederate flag license plates mm -hmm. and uh, holding their, you know, uh, assault, assault weapons. And I didn't want to do that for this particular story. Um, the guy on the bulldozer is a, uh, he's a Hispanic uh, caretaker for a really big ranch. And that's a little 22. He keeps with him all the time that because there's a lot of snakes and a lot of snakes in Texas, a lot of snakes on the ranch. So he keeps that by his side all the time. And, uh, and, um, yeah, there's Taya. That's uh, let's see, Jesse James is in there. He makes he makes uh, guns here in Texas, and then uh, and then the uh, I think the last one is kind of my favorite one. It's this woman that uh, is in West Texas in Alpine, and she uh, she's she she teaches a concealed carry class and typically people charge like 500 bucks for a concealed carry class and she charges like what it costs her to do it and the license. So it's like $40 or wow. something. So she just does it for just to, as an educator, she's a school teacher and she does it as, as an edu as an educator, but I, I really like that picture, but you know, that was an assignment. Um, and I kind of weighed in on, how we would approach it and who would be included in it. And the decision was made to like not do that sort of like cliche, which exists and it's out there so much. Uh, just, I didn't want to be that guy, you know, to do that one, you know, That's I wanted to be great contrast. Yeah. It also yeah. shows how far, uh, I, I mean, it's not a fringe group of people supporting the second amendment. It's, mm -hmm the middle class and it's much farther than we perceive those of us that don't know much about mm -hmm. it. It's true. Well, we're recording the show on a, a historic day in American history where Kamala ha uh, Harris has received uh, the nomination for VP to be the VP on the ticket with uh, 
VP Biden. Uh, so let's take a look at Dan's Instagram page and watch how Dan instantly reflects the news with work he's already oh. done. So talk mm-hmm. about this image for us, would you please, Dan? Yeah, I did that uh, some years back for People, I think People Magazine or Rolling Stone, I can't remember. But it was, uh, it was a photograph of her when she was DA. And uh, we shot on a Overlook. It was above Fort Point, uh, you know, at the uh, kind of uh, San Francisco approach to the bridge and to the Golden Gate Bridge. I thought that would be kind of an appropriate setting for it. And, uh, yeah, I pulled it out of the archive today when I heard the news because I was, I was very happy that, uh, that she got the nomination. I like her. I think she's – I think she would have – personally, I think she would have probably been a great president. I think she's, she's comfortable in that roll-your-sleeves-up kind of man-dominated world. I think she's tough. She's kind of a badass. She's smart as a whip. And, uh, you know, I think everyone's, you know, every, we're all flawed. And there are probably some things that she did when she was DA that she would probably not do today. But, um, but I think uh, I'm really happy that Biden chose her. I was hoping he would, to be honest with you. What was your take on her personally, having, having worked with her? Super sweet, very grateful, uh, gracious with her time. Wanted to make sure we got the job done. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I shot her, I shot the police chief of San Francisco, and I shot the fire chief of San Francisco, um, all three women. And uh, that was from that shoot. I did, a, I did singles as well. Well, uh, Dan, you are a person who's taking full advantage of technology's power to indulge our obsessions. Uh, you have many. Uh, ever since I've known you, since before the internet, whenever you and your son Dylan become intrigued you go deep mm-hmm. it's all in it's all in with the winter's boys um so your interests include uh let's see photography insects beekeeping drag racing aircraft 20th century geopolitics world war ii scuba diving the space programs the history of space flight the future of space flight, model building for dylan of course it was the the uh roller coaster roller coaster obsession. let's call it the the, the <laughs> dylan's roller coaster era because i mean mm-hmm. It may have lasted 10 years, but he was like more into like the physics of, mm-hmm. you know, what you could do mm-hmm. to induce vomiting. So yeah, he was talk- designing his own roller coasters. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 He was. And so, and Dylan today is using his scientific mind in his, in his chosen profession, correct? Uh, he was. Now he's acting. Oh, now he's an actor. <laughs> Well, yeah. he was an aerospace engineer turned actor. Yeah. Yeah. I knew that he was kind of like straddling both of those, but uh, yeah. I did not know he had taken the, the leap to full-time mm-hmm. acting. Um, so, so Dan, let, let me ask you a question. Those of us who live in California uh, have a special relationship with wildfires mm-hmm. and they're part of our lives. We fear them. We have a dark fascination when they're happening over there and not in our neighborhood. Yeah. And you did some spectacular photographs of a fire in Texas. Um, I can't remember the name of the fire. Oh, it was uh, Bastrop, Bastrop, the Bastrop fire. fire. But you did these from overhead mm-hmm. and you shot pictures of the burn scars mm-hmm. And each of these black and white burn scar photographs reveal these really interesting crosshatch patterns. And they were like works of art among themselves. They were like Jackson Pollock paintings. You know, lines are going every which way. And it was really an interesting, so different take on what we see with all the newsreel footage that goes on about fires every day. Mm -hmm. A completely different angle. Yeah, that was an interesting fire. Things look really cool from helicopters. For sure. And, um, you know, I think some of those burn scars were so interesting because they're so are completely arbitrary and random. And, you know, mm-hmm. there's one that has these fingers that goes way out into this field and it burned out. It burned itself out. Or there might have been a water drop on it. I'm not sure. They were doing a lot of water drops on that fire. But, uh, you know, I started when I was working for the Thousand Oaks News Chronicle. Uh, that was just a part of our reality in the summer was fires. Mm-hmm. We all had to carry a uh, fire a turnout coat. We had to carry steel toed boots and we had in our vehicles because we, and we went and met with the fire department and had like a fire safety course and we were 
accredited and that was just a part of what we did i mean i got dumped uh, i got a helicopter load of water dumped on me one time uh fortunately i was slightly peripheral to it so i didn't get taken out by it but uh boy it's a lot of water when they dump especially when they get those uh they were doing a lot of water at that time but when they get the big borade bombers coming in from from up north that's that's a show when those things go Let's take a look at your Instagram again real quick because okay. I just want to I want to ask you if there's anything here that you'd like to point out cuz sometimes you post your illustrations mm-hmm. as well. Uh and, yeah, that church is uh that's brand new. That just got yeah. published. I just did that a few weeks ago. That's a uh that's a um that was to illustrate a story on how the uh religious right has been using COVID uh, to sort of further their own sort of socio-political agendas. And uh, so I <clears throat> drew that church so that it was falling over to the right. And uh, we got the Bible up there floating overhead. And that's pencil drawing. Um, I, I've done a lot of pencil drawing illustrations over the years. Nice thing about those is I can stay home and do those. I don't have to travel. So that, uh, that's a really enjoyable way to work for me. And what kind of feedback do you uh, receive when you when you submit something that's controversial or that that is um, that it, it, incites opinion? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So the uh, the typical the typical process, uh, like procedurally, is that um, you know I get the phone call. We'd like you to do one of your pencil drawings for the story. We're going to send you the story. Get the story. Read the story. And then I think for this, I did five or six very loose sketches uh, with, you know, kind of my solves for the story. And uh, then they had a meeting and picked the one, the church one was the one they liked. Several of them had small churches. They just had various other kind of uh, elements. And then, um, and then I just go to town and draw it. And then uh, it goes to... Uh, you know, then the scan goes to the magazine. Um, in terms of feedback, you know, I didn't, I, I haven't really looked at that image to see how much feedback uh, it got. But, and the, the true test will be the feedback the magazine gets. You know, that's, uh, that I'll, I'll, I'll probably get, sometimes magazines will send any feedback they get on a particular thing I do. They send it to me so I can see kind of what the readership, how the readership responded. It's kind of a good it's kind of a good way to sort of uh, stay in touch with kind of the public in, in that term, in that term. But and you get uh, commissioned to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, like you've done a lot with New York times magazine and New York magazine. How much do they allow you to bring to the table? What I mean is, do they allow you to create the concept that you think will work or do they come in with a specific, uh, specific set of ideas and then micromanage you as you shoot? Or is it, is it your, creativity that gives fruit to these photos yeah there's usually no one at the shoot but me and my my guy or guys a couple guys gals as well um so usually what will happen is i I mean with the new york times for example the i have a a 30-year relationship with the same photo editor she's been there for 32 years so she and i you know we can finish one another's sentences so the the thing that's been really nice in the last mm, 10 plus years is uh, having a website and we can both go on the website and we can go through work and say something like this might work for this. Maybe we do an approach that's similar to this. And then I just take that and kind of, uh, kind of, or I come to them with an idea, you know, that Helen Marin picture, for example, that's on my website um, was uh you know, they said, what would you do with Helen Mirren? And I said, I would build this set that is a, you know, that looks like a Parisian atelier with her like floating across the floor. And it was an expensive set. And they said, you know, go ahead and do it. And so we built that and shot it. So it kind of depends. Usually I'm pretty much left alone. Like, you know, the fires, I just told the magazine I wanted to get I wanted to use helicopters to shoot it. And they said, yeah, that's fine. Just, you know, try to keep the money, try to keep the budget down. But yeah, they just said, we'll just, you know, go ahead and 
do the helicopter thing. So I thought that would be an interesting way to shoot it because you're right, it is oftentimes shot from the ground. And and I have shot a lot of fires when I worked in the newspaper uh, business, both for the LA Times and for Thousand Oaks News Chronicle. Oh yeah, that's the one I was talking about. I felt like that was so interesting how it kind of burned out. Yeah, that one definitely burned out. I don't think that was... Uh, I don't think that was sprayed. It might have been dropped on. I'm not sure. It looks like nature is scratching out a code for us. It's wild, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It's really beautiful. And Are you course, able to do any shoots during during the pandemic? Or, or are you able to do any kind of like socially safe outdoor types um, of... I've done... I did one... The one shoot I did, I did was... Uh, well, I did a couple of illustrations. And then I also did a shoot where uh, we kind of did a test run to figure out a way to shoot during COVID. So I got together with a group of people here in Austin. We got a model and we did a, basically we did like a COVID simulation shoot where we had a check-in station that had someone that was taking temperatures that was, you know, you were signing, uh, you know, a questionnaire about all the questions, you know, can you taste, can you, can you smell, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, we were transmitting live shots that were coming in uh, to New York and to another place in Austin. The idea being that if we uh, did get an assignment, it would uh, forego sort of like the compulsory travel uh, by the client because in an advertising situation, advertising clients always go to shoots. You're never left alone. As an addendum to what we were talking about earlier, Fritz, when you're doing advertising work, there's always someone there. Uh, kind of running, running, running herd to a degree, not not necessarily so much. Um, but the last thing I shot before COVID was Bernie. I did that portrait of Bernie for the New York Times, and um, it's actually on the Instagram a little ways down. Uh, did the shoot with Bernie, and then uh, and then I had my surgery. So I kind of used the COVID, my knowledge that this thing was going to take out the industry for a while. Uh, I used it to actually do the surgery that's been probably six or seven years overdue. And it's like transformed me. I, I can't even tell you. I wish I did it six or seven years ago. Wait, did you do both knees? No, just one. One oh. of them was really bad. Really okay. bad. So like, how's it coming? Oh, it's fantastic. It's great. Yeah. You're doing it. Through physical therapy three days a week. I do my exercises every day. I walk. I did a shoot on Friday for the movie. I've been working on my movie. Um, we shot Friday all day. It was the first time I've shot since the surgery. Went great. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So tell us about the movie. The movie, I've been working on this movie for two years, and it's kind of a, a dystopic sci-fi love story. It's got a lot of really cool sets, and it's very stylized, and it has uh, a lot of miniatures in it, spaceships, and there's a flying train that flies across the Mars landscape, and it's really kind of a cool little project that I wrote and uh, I got friends to act in it and uh, it's really neat. It's, it's been a lot of fun. It's taken a long time. We're editing now uh, and we, we, we were scheduled right before the pandemic happened. We were scheduled for six days and those would have been the final six days. And my main actor called he's immunocompromised and he called me he's like well we should wait let's wait another two weeks and see what happens so we canceled we canceled the shoot and that's six months ago five months ago yeah. yeah so we just shot two scenes on friday and i have two more to shoot and then it'll be completely shot and then it's just a matter of getting it uh getting it through sound and i have a composer in london who i've worked with before that's done some of the music for it and uh has yet to finish scoring it and uh yeah it's a 40 minute festival it'll be 40 minutes and it'll be shown at festivals and we're going to enter pretty much every festival you know from new york tribeca south by southwest you know uh berlin we have a whole like plan of attack for the festivals that we've come up with and stuff and it's really been great because i've used uh a big part of the crews have been uh ut students university of texas film students and so everybody on set with the exception of my two normal guys on Friday were all UT students. We all wore masks all day. Kath actually came to set, which uh, is a rare treat that she comes to set. She doesn't usually ever come to set. Was that so the picture that, you posted on yeah. Instagram a couple yeah, days ago? Exactly. Oh, you were on yeah. set. Okay. Yeah, we were on set. Yeah. It's 
a lot of fun. But she keeps um, all the balls in the air no matter where you are. She keeps all the balls in the air, but it was just really nice. Like, especially, you know, my favorite time of day is like just as the sun's setting and after it's set, just the, you know, magic hour, that glow is so beautiful. And we'd wrapped and we were just like wrapping things up and that we were all kind of experiencing that beautiful part of the day. You know, we shot a little bit in that light and then got what we needed. So we stopped, but it was a lot of, uh, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, if anybody wants to give their mind a rest from the pandemic and feel positive about human nature, you need to go to Dan's website and peruse his various uh, streams of photography, various themes that he has on the left. You're a, you're a very talented person, sir, and it's Thank a you. pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. What an honor it was. Thank you. It was great meeting you. Well, I want to thank our guest, Dan Winters. Our producer is Dina Friedman. Our production team includes Francesco Demanda and Mosey Mosenko. Our sound mixer is John Maddox. Our webmaster is Bill Filipiak. Your hosts are Fritz Coleman and me, Louise Palenker. We will see you along the media path. <laughs> <laughs>